Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Dietitian Connection acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter, Account Director at Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. So currently fibre intake in Australia is considered to be lower than recommended, with about six out of 10 Australians really not getting enough fibre. As dietitians, we know adequate fibre intake is associated with improved digestive health and is also linked to reduced risk of several severe and um, chronic diseases. But when it comes to fibre, there are a number of different types, including soluble, insoluble, resistant starch, prebiotic fibre, all of which have specific health benefits. And this can be really, really confusing for clients. So it's important for dietitians to know which fibre does what and how we can advise our clients. This month in February is Gut Health Month. It's a national month to talk about common gut problems and nutrition interventions that can help patients and clients feel better. In our podcast today with Joanna Baker, we're going to focus on prebiotic fibre, what it is, what the research tells us about the health benefits, and we'll go a bit deeper into partially hydrolyzed guar gum or PHGG as a prebiotic fibre and how that can support gut health. Joanna's a dietitian and registered nurse who loves food. Her passion for digestive health stems from a lifelong battle with IBS. Joanna's trained and experienced in the low FODMAP diet and food chemical sensitivities. She's presented to dietitians around Australia as well as in the USA on the low FODMAP diet and functional gastrointestinal disorders. She's currently on the Food Allergy and Intolerance Interest Group Committee at Dietitians Australia and the advisory board for the Master of Dietetics at Deakin University. And we'd like to thank Fibre Choice for supporting uh, our podcast today. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only, and we advise you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. So welcome to the podcast, Joanna, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we like to get to know our guests a little bit before we launch into the topic. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and your career so far and specifically your experience um, in supporting people with gut health? Yeah, so I so I first, I as you know, I'm a dietitian and I'm also a registered nurse. I graduated from my nursing degree way back in the mid-90s. So that was before the days of degrees being on the internet we actually had to go to uni um, so it seems I'm showing my age but I first worked for the first half of my career as an anesthetic nurse in hospitals um, in operating theatre putting people to sleep waking them up managing pain and that sort of thing and I always really enjoyed that I was always fascinated by the human body and what it's capable of and medical science and what we can do with it but after my son was born in 2008 I went back to work and I was feeling really disillusioned 
with nursing in general. And I sort of thought I did a bit of a stock take and I thought, what do I really love? And I, I love food and I, I, I enjoy it and I enjoy playing with it and eating it and talking about it. So that's when I sort of clicked onto dietetics as a way to sort of combine my passion for science with my love of food. And it sort of had, the, it sort of seemed like the perfect fit for me. So that was when I decided to go back to uni and I did my master's of dietetics at Deakin. Um, once I graduated, I had, by the time I did that crossover with nursing and uh, studying dietetics, and by the time I graduated, I think I'd spent nearly 20 years in the hospital system. So by then I'd had enough. I was going to say, that's quite a commitment to go back to studying dietetics. Yes, yes. So, the, I mean, there was about sort of four or five years crossover there where I was nursing part-time and studying at the same time. Um, and it was exactly 20 years from the year I graduated to my last nursing degree. <laughs> so that was long enough to work in hospitals. And um, by then, I mean, I, I've had gut issues my entire life. I was only 12 months old when my mother took me to the doctor for the first time and said, there's something wrong with this child's gut. You know, we've got to do something. Wow. So I don't really know what a life is like to not have gut issues. That's not to say I was suffering that whole time. When I look back, I've had some really good years. I've had some really bad years that sort of ebbed and flowed away most of the time. But what it taught me is how much it impacts quality of life mm. when you're feeling bad and how much better it is when you're feeling good. And I'd had enough of the hospital, so I went straight into private practice when I graduated. And I really wanted to work with people who had gut issues because I wanted them to feel better. And that reward, it's so rewarding to see someone who's miserable with a few little tweaks just turn their life around and be able to really get out there and improve that quality of life and start enjoying things again. So that's kind of what's taken me into private practice and into gut health in general. And I guess it's interesting, isn't it, that people can be sort of, I call it low-level suffering. They don't realise how impacted their quality of life is until they actually feel better and go, wow, this is amazing, feeling well. Yes. Some people that haven't felt well for years and just to find that new normal all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what it was like for me when I first um, identified uh, the things that were triggering my system it was the first time in my life that I wasn't bloated. I thought everybody was bloated by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That was just normal. And it wasn't until I wasn't bloated that I realised that it's not normal. Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, with if you're talking to people about gut health a lot, yes. you probably talk about fibre a lot in your practice. I uh, and do. So we've been, we've been hearing, you know, over many years uh, a lot about dietary fibre, um, but I guess Prebiotic fibre is a relatively new term. So can you tell us exactly what prebiotic fibre is and how it differs from, from other fibre types? Yeah. yeah. So prebiotics, yes, it is a relatively new term. Um, all prebiotics are fibre, but not all fibres are prebiotics. Um, we've got a definition of prebiotics that's changed a bit over the years, but the current definition is that it's got to have four characteristics. So the first one is that it's got to be re resistant to the acidic pH in the stomach. The second one is that it cannot be hydrolyzed by mammalian enzymes, um, so it's not absorbed in the digestive tract. So it survives the stomach, it passes through the small intestine where it reaches the large intestine, where it's got to be fermented by intestinal microflora that 
live in that large intestine. But this is where the key word is, is that that fermentation selectively stimulates the growth or the activity of intestinal bacteria, and that infers a health benefit on the host. And, and it's that selective stimulation that makes prebiotics different from other fermentable fibers, because obviously all soluble fibers are fermentable, but they don't all selectively stimulate and cause that health benefit to the host. So sorry, when you're saying selectively, does that mean that they uh, selectively stimulate some gut bacteria? Yes. So to be classified as a prebiotic, the fibre must stimulate the growth or activity of the beneficial bacteria in the colon, and that then confers the health benefit of the host, and not all soluble fibres will do this. That's something that's specific to prebiotic fibres. Right. So, and obviously different to probiotics. Prebiotics are different to probiotics. Absolutely. So prebiotics, they're live microorganisms, um, whereas a probiotic is the sorry, probiotics are live microorganisms, whereas the prebiotic is the food for the microorganism. Yeah. So when we're talking about prebiotic fibres, what are the sort of names of these fibres and and what foods are they found in naturally? Yeah, absolutely. So the the prebiotic fibres that are defined at the moment is that we've got the fructooligosaccharides, which are found in things like inulin and chicory and rye. We see them in a few fruits and vegetables as well, like artichokes and garlic and onion. Uh, We've got galactooligosaccharides, which are obviously found in legumes and a few nuts. Uh, Resistant starch in cooked and cooled rice and pasta. Uh, there's also galactomannan, which is found in guar gum and partially hydrolyzed guar gum. And human breast milk has also got some prebiotics in it as well. Oh, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting it right from the time we're babies. Yeah, so it must be something innately good about it um, if it's in human breast milk. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about, about what the health benefits are for prebiotic fibres and how do they actually help improving our, our gut health? So there's a, a lot of studies more recently. So the, this research is really exploding over the last few years and there's almost not enough room in my head for it anymore <laughs> because there's so much of it. Um, but a lot of them, a lot of the studies have demonstrated the health benefits of prebiotics, which include eff- effects on the gastrointestinal tract, where they prevent pathogen damage, or they stimulate the immune system, or they improve the gut barrier function. They reduce pathogenic bacteria population. They're involved in the production of short-chain fatty acids, which then in turn have an effect on the cardiovascular system, where they affect blood lipids. They affect insulin resistance and glucose modulation they affect mental health and we're also starting to think that they've got some effects on bone density and by and the bioavailability of some minerals including calcium and magnesium well it sounds like you may need to clear some more space in your head because it sounds like there's going to be a lot more research coming along with all of those potential benefits and absolutely Can you give us a a very brief, and I know that there's a lot here, but just a brief overview of how it does work in our body? Um, So I guess the first thing of all is that prebiotics, they're going to feed and nourish your gut microbiota. They're going to keep your microbiome fed and they're going to keep it healthy. And I kind of understand this as a lot like um, when you've got a beautiful garden with some beautiful flowers, you put fertilizer on it, that fertilizer helps that garden grow and flourish. 
when we're giving our microbiome prebiotics, that's like fertilizer for our microbiome and helps it grow and flourish. The selective fermentation then generates the production of short-chain fatty acids, um, which are then absorbed into the bloodstream. And they're also transported to organs and provide health benefit to the organs as well. The short-chain fatty acids, they also have protective and immunomodulatory benefits. So butterate in particular supports gut barrier function. It uh, fuels colonocytes and it improves the integrity of the gut barrier. Uh, propanate and acetate, they also provide a number of benefits where they impact things like cholesterol. They have cholesterol-lowering effects. They reduce fat storage and they also have anti-inflammatory effects as well. Prebiotics also, uh, they prevent pathogens. So that fermentation of the prebiotic in the colon inhibits the growth of other opportunistic uh, pathogens. So like lactic acid and things like that. Um, depending on the types, prebiotics not only feed and support specific members of the gut microbiota, but they can also support other beneficial microbes through cross-feeding as well. So the um, results of that or the, the outcome of those short-chain fatty acids, the, the postbiotics then help too. Um, prebiotic fermentation into short-chain fatty acids and hydrogen also contributes to bowel regularity. So uh, people are more comfortable and going to the toilet more regularly. Um, while most of the well-known and demonstrated benefits of prebiotics is through their interaction with gut microbiota, there are some really recent studies, and look, most of these are either in vitro or in animal studies at this stage, but they're starting to um, indicate that there is evidence that prebiotics actually have benefits independent of their action on the gut microbiota. And we're starting to think that they may act directly on the epithelial and innate immune cells through the toll-like receptors influencing gut permeability and immune function as well, and all of that independent of their effect on the microbiota. So I'm really, that's where I'm excited to see things go in the future, to see where that happens. And, and is there as much um, research and evidence around uh, prebiotics as there is for probiotics? That's a really interesting question, Jane. Um, if you punch the term prebiotic into PubMed, you're going to get nearly 4,000 studies uh, for prebiotic. Whereas if you punch in the term probiotic, you're going to get over 12,000 studies. So there are a lot more studies on probiotics than there are on prebiotics, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there is good evidence there. So um, what's really interesting is that there are actually trillions and trillions of strains of, pro strains of probiotics. Um, humans have all got about a kilo of bacteria that lives in their large intestine, but that from person to person, your bacteria is more individual than fingerprints. So you've got trillions of strains of probiotics. You've got uh, gut microbiome that is more individual than fingerprints. And most of the research on probiotics, it, it's not indicating strongly one way or the other because probiotics behave differently in different people. So it's really hard to get that cohort that's going to show a particular benefit when everybody is so different. Most of the research on prebiotics categorizes them by, or most of the research on fiber in general categorizes fiber as soluble fiber or insoluble fiber. And it doesn't necessarily look at the complexity of the different types of fiber and their, and their fermentability in the gut. Some theories um, that have been suggested recently is that perhaps we should be categorizing fibers by their fermentability rather than soluble versus insoluble, because 
that that fermentability tends to be more reflective of their benefit to the host than soluble versus insoluble. Um, one of the main benefits is the prebiotics is they actually target and nourish the natural bacteria that live in your gut rather than reintroducing a new bacteria to the gut, which is what a probiotic does. Um, I think we're going to see more research again in coming years because we're starting to um, be able to map gut microbiomes. Um, that's starting to, the science around that is really advanced and is becoming cheaper. So we're going to perhaps start seeing research studies that map a microbiome at the beginning and then do an intervention and then map the microbiome and see what changes. So I'm kind of excited for that as well. Yeah, and I guess a lot of the research is that background animal research to actually get the sort of proof of concept ideas before you can move to human intervention type studies. Yeah. So if we, sorry, go on. There are some things that we can't do in humans because of ethics as well. (laughs) Unfortunate. So if we if we think about um, sort of more in a, a clinical practice setting, you're, you've worked in the area of gut health, have you said, and you've got your um, your busy private practice, Everyday Nutrition, which is in Melbourne. So can you tell us a bit about when you would actually recommend the use of prebiotics? So which clients might benefit from having some more prebiotics, and and what sort of interventions you recommend for them? Yeah, so I'm a huge believer in including empirical treatments with my management, um, and I regularly use prebiotic fibre supplementation specifically to assist with symptoms of things like constipation, diarrhoea, and bloating. Um, working almost exclusively in IBS and food intolerances, there's kind of there's two types of patients that I tend to see. So. The the first type are people that are coming to me with symptoms, they haven't investigated diet at all in the past and they're not on any sort of restrictive diet. Um, And the second lot are people that are already on a restrictive diet and they're not getting symptom control, so they're becoming more and more restrictive with their diet to try and gain that symptom control. Um, In both of these cases, at my initial consult, one of the things that's really important to me to do if I'm going to be able to do anything with a patient in the future, I I really need to build that trust. Um, And to build that trust, I often find that if we can calm their gut down with a really simple intervention initially, they're then a lot more happy to come back for that second appointment. And that's when I can really start doing some proper work in terms of improving that gut health. But building that trust is really key. So that means that I often will use empirical treatments fairly early on. um, And I would introduce a prebiotic supplement at that point to improve those symptoms directly. Um, The thing with prebiotics is that you do have to be fairly careful with them because um, some prebiotics are not really that well tolerated. And I'm talking, I'm seeing patients that have got digestive problems. So we Mm. really want to be quite gentle with them. And we want to be using something that is slowly fermented because that's going to be less likely to be uh, causing bloating and causing pain and cramping and things like that. So something like partially hydrolyzed guar gum is something that I use quite a bit. Um, I use it in smaller doses to manage constipation because in the smaller doses, it's got quite some quite good water holding ability where it increases the bulk and it softens the stool and makes it much easier to pass. If I've got somebody who has got looser bowel movements, I might use something like PHGG to manage the diarrhea because it, it acts like a bit of a sponge and it soaks up that excess water and we end up with a more formed, uh, more consistent bowel movement as a result of that. Yeah, I guess uh, if you suggest something to one of your clients 
and goes away and they leave and it makes them worse. They're very unlikely to come back, aren't they? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, I want to increase their variety. So if I can give them something that's going to make them comfortable and have them come back, then we can really start doing that. Yeah. So do you um, do you start as well? As, so once they've settled a bit and they're having the supplement and that, that's making them feel better, alongside with a supplement, do you then start trying to get the range of foods broader? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I guess it kind of depends a lot on um, the person and on the consult because it'll be a little bit different for everybody. Yeah. Um, my initial consult, I spend a lot of time, it's at least an hour, if not an hour and a half, and we spend a lot of time talking about the symptoms and the patterns of their symptoms and what foods they think trigger them. And I try to get a really good idea of what I think the actual key factor is there yeah. that's triggering them. And so when I am coming to expanding their diet, the thing that I think is triggering them, that's going to be the very last thing I suggest to them. I, I want to start expanding with things that I think they're going to tolerate quite well Initially, yes. because again, then that's building confidence and building that trust. And um, I, I think that once people start expanding your di their diet and getting good results, that really stimulates them and spurs them on to start including more things. And that then improves their mental health and improves their quality of life. And I, I was just saying to somebody earlier that um, if somebody's mental health is improved, then how they experience their symptoms is very different to when somebody's mental health is not that great. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting point. And so following on from, from that and, and your experience in talking about sort of you have two groups of patients, some come in who are already following a restrictive diet and, and some who may not be but are suffering from gut symptoms. Are there any diets in particular that you see um, that people have probably put themselves on that are risk of being low in prebiotic fibre? Uh, low FODMAP is the first one that comes to mind. So, and, and look, particularly most of the high FODMAP foods are very high in prebiotic fibres. So, and when we look at the research, um, we know that people on a low FODMAP diet are less likely to be meeting their fibre needs. Um, and I kind of, I, I suppose I'm in a fairly biased situation, but I feel like every man and his dog who's ever had a stomachache is on a FODMAP diet these days. <laughs> Um, the other one is low residue diets. Uh, I don't see those quite so often, but um, occasionally we'll see a low residue diet, which of course is inherently low on fibre. Um, but I guess one of the things about living with the embarrassing and unpredictable gut symptoms for some time, people are really scared and they have a lot of fear and anxiety mm -hmm. around um, adding things to their diet. So again, establishing that trust early on getting those symptoms calm so that we can then start adding some of these natural prebiotics, which is ultimately where we want to get to. Yeah, so you would be trying to do that as well for someone on a low FODMAP diet, understanding the strict phase of that should only be for a limited time anyway, but then start introducing those ones that you think will be better tolerated. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's no, there's no point restricting something if you tolerate it. No, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and it's totally unnecessary. So a lot of it is just about giving people the courage. Um, if they've felt really bad and then a FODMAP diet makes them feel really, good, feel really good, it's hard to get them to expand again. So sort of building that trust and getting that courage to actually go out there and give it a go is a big part. Yeah. And with all the noise around gut health at the moment, and you really only just have to say those words and people oh. line up for products or whatever I mean there's just an amazing interest um, in gut health I think from not only health professionals but consumers and clients and the general public what sort of um, 
misconceptions have you seen around fibre, maybe in the media, maybe amongst your your clients? Um, look, my biggest bugbear are things like gluten-free and gluten and dairy are pro-inflammatory. It really bothers me. Things like keto diets and low-carb diets being anti-inflammatory because that it's so opposite to what the research is telling us. You know, the research is so strong that things like whole grains and things mm. are so good for your gut. Um, that you need to restrict your diet to improve gut symptoms. So many times what you add to your diet is so much more important than what you remove in terms of improving your gut health. Um, this worked for me, so it's going to work for you. You know, a six-pack doesn't necessarily mean a nutrition degree. Yeah, it's called social media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She looks great in a bikini. She must know what she's doing. Yeah. <laughs> um all prebiotics are created equal because they're not. There's a very big difference between um, in terms of tolerance when it comes to prebiotics and that you can't get prebiotics on a low FODMAP diet, which you can if you pay attention to it. And I guess that's where dietitians come in to their own is advising people on how to implement these diets in the best, healthiest way um, possible. So You've given us a, a nice overview of, of prebiotic fibres, what they do and the different types, um, and you've mentioned PHGG. Um, can you just give us a little bit more details about what PHGG actually is? Yep. So partially hydrolyzed guar gum, it's essentially it's a prebiotic fibre and it has been shown to produce significantly higher levels of short-chain fatty acids than other soluble fibres. So that's what helps classify it, obviously, as a prebiotic. Um, it comes from guar gum. So guar gum itself comes from guar beans, which are harvested mostly in India. Um, and guar gum is very effective at small doses as a thickener stabilizer. So it really gels and it's got a lot of viscousness. So we use it in a lot of uh, things like plant milks and stuff because it makes them creamier and, and really it, it works really well as a, as a stabilizer and a thickener. Um, the thing Guagum, it's also got a lot of benefits which show that it lowers cholesterol, it attenuates postprandial glucose response, it improves store frequency and store form. Um, but the problem is because it's um, so viscous and so gel-like, um, to use it at the amounts we need for it to be therapeutic, um, it's got lots of difficulty swallowing and it's even carrying choking risks and things like that. So that so what, what we've done is um, partially hydrolyzed guar gum has undergone an enzymatic hydrolysis, which lowers the molecular weight. And this makes it non-viscous, but it still maintains those prebiotic benefits of improving the blood lipids and the glucose response. Um, when it's um, been partially hydrolyzed, it means that it's tasteless and it's colorless and it doesn't thicken. It doesn't change the texture or the consistency of any foods or fluids that it's added to. So we can use it at larger doses and we know it's going to be easy to add. It's going to be pleasant to take. And of course, we all know that easy and pleasant is important for sustainability. So when you add it to a liquid of your choice, you're not going to end up with jelly that you have to spoon out of the cup. It's still uh, going to be a liquid. Yeah. I, I still remember in my uh, nursing training days, so we're going back a long time here, um, one of uh, an older gentleman that I looked after at one point, he used to get his uh, fiber supplement and mix it into the water and then he would sit there with a spoon <laughs> to have it. But um, partially hydrolyzed guar gum has no impact on texture and no impact on taste, so it's tasteless, colorless, 
textualist completely yeah. disappears you don't even know you're having it which is great um and is there much sort of research into the health benefits of phgg specifically uh, well we know that it's a prebiotic fiber and we know that obviously as i said it uh, has cholesterol lowering benefits it attenuates the glucose response which is great in terms of constipation um the humans it's quite interesting. Human studies have shown that there is a reduced need for laxatives when people are taking PHGG. So um, in adults and in children, we find that it decreases the colonic transit time. Um, we think that a lot of that is to do with the water holding capacity of it and the increased bacterial growth and reduced pH. But what's really interesting is when we put give it to a cohort of people who have got di diarrhea, it actually tends to increase the colonic transit time. So um, things move through a lot more slowly when we're giving it to someone with diarrhea. So it's almost having opposite effects depending on what's going on in you. So I kind of see it as it tends to bring the stool back to the middle, regardless of which end that you're at, which is pretty cool. Um, we think that uh, for the people who are diarrhea, diarrhea dominant, it's mostly due to the short-chain fatty acid production, which, re which results in increased sodium transport, and that helps with improving that stool consistency. Um, and like I said, for IBS, it's got that dual action. So if you've got someone who's got alternating IBS and you think, oh, gosh, what a, I can't give them a constipation mm. supplement, I can't give them a diarrhea supplement, that PHGG bringing things back to the middle seems to work really well. Um, and because it's got that, it's got a very slow fermentation. So the thing about um, FODMAPs that makes them cause that bloating in the gut is that they're very rapidly fermented. PHGG is very slow fermentation. It's much less likely to cause any bloating or discomfort. And, of course, if someone's feeling better when they're taking it, they're going to keep taking it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So for dietitians uh, that might be listening to you talk about this today, and I think you've given a really nice overview of, of all the benefits of, of prebiotic fibres, but, but what do you think would be, what are your key messages to dietitians who are working with patients with gut health issues um, around fibre? Yep. Um, I think I've got four. So first of all, adding, don't be scared to add a fibre supplement because if you can improve that stool form and improve that stool frequency, that's going to instill trust and then allow you to expand the diet further down the track. And I, I think that is key when you're working with people who have got gut problems. Um, prebiotic su fiber supplements have so many benefits for gut health um, and so many long-term health and well-being benefits. So while you're helping someone feel better right now, you know that you're actually doing something beneficial for that long-term health and well-being. And I often say to my patients who get good results, that they'll come back to me and say, oh, it works really well, but can I take it long-term? And there are so many positive benefits to taking it long term and I'm yet to find a negative benefit to taking it long term so that long-term health and well-being is great as well I do think we need to be careful with which prebiotic fiber you choose because um, you've got to consider consider tolerance and you've got to consider palatability because those are really key to sustainability um, and phgg is a really versatile fiber it mixes it into foods or fluids it like i said doesn't change taste or texture and that we get the results we don't upset people they feel better and they trust us and then we they build that confidence to expand their diet 
Well, thanks. Thanks for all of that, Joanna. Thanks for sharing so much information. And I think um, your passion for this area is palpable. <laughs> you, can, you can hear it. Um, I don't know whether that's because of your um, long-standing gut health issues or just because you really, really love food and you want everyone to be able to enjoy it. Um, Probably all of the above. Yeah, but <laughs> I wherever get too excited sometimes. <laughs> wherever it comes from, um, it's, it's great to see such enthusiasm for it and I'm sure your, your clients really benefit from that. So we really, really appreciate your time today and we'd also just like to say that, you know, I think this is an area that dietitians have so much to offer clients uh, because it is such a confusing area and with that explosion of research that you talked about how on earth can the general public um, who have no background in this sort of negotiate what's fact and what's fiction here so dietitians are really um, key people to try and guide and advise people and get the right sort of personalized help for them so thanks for your time and we'd also like to thank um, Fiber Choice for supporting our podcast today so thank you Joanna. Thanks for having me, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.